Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Have you ever sat around a table with people and um, everybody has their phones out, like looking at something, or maybe you're you're with friends and you say something and they're like, wait a second, let me Google that. Let me find that out. Let me, let me check how long the distance between, I don't know, Kingston and Belleville is or something. That's just a weird, odd kind of thing you might check, but you might like say, you know, you just Google these things, right? We're, we're, we live in that era where we always want to find this information. I, gotta, I have a confession to make. I'm a little bit of an info junkie. Not the distance between places, but just info junkie. Now, I, now I'm not into junkie info. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I tend to be a little bit of an info junkie where I like to read articles and links and find things out and understand things, uh, news and books. And I tend to be curious that way uh, to find that. But you know what, what I find sometimes when I'm reading a whole bunch of things or a whole bunch of perspectives, there's often confusion that can set in when we're just filled with so much information. And the confusion makes us wonder, like, who makes the world turn? Like, who, who is actually leading things? And there was a book came out several years ago by um, a great the- theological writer. His name was Robert Weber. And the title of the book was Who Narrates the World? I love that title. Who Narrates the World? When we think about that, is it the economy that narrates the world? Is it political powers that narrate the world? Is it media that narrates the world? Is it um, religious movements or, or expressions Even more individualistic in our era, is it me that narrates the world? Like, do I narrate the world? Does your perspective narrate the world or my experience? Sometimes it seems like that. It seems like like we we place that on how the world looks and and how the world is going, like, like it revolves around me. We started a series last week called Look Up, just this, to, this idea to lean into the practice of worship for a few weeks this fall. And when we think about worship... The purpose of worship, we can state it this way, helps us answer that question. The purpose of worship helps us answer the question, who narrates the world? Last week we said simple definition of worship, that worship means we're ascribing worth to something or we're ascribing worth to someone. And as Christians, as Christ followers, we ascribe that ultimate worth to God and expressed in Christ Jesus, as we also noticed through the, through the New Testament last week. But think about this. You worship, and I worship, what we worship is supported by the stories we believe in or the stories we allow to influence our lives. The story of a hard-working, you know, maybe family tradition to become successful is something that we can tend to worship, give worth to. Uh, How the stock market will fuel someone's pension plan or the foundation of a country and and how that frames how we live and and the society we build. Maybe family traditions that we we tell one another. These are stories that we uh, lean into and these stories usually tell us what to worship because we give worth by these stories and whatever we give worth to in response gives meaning to our lives whether it's right or wrong whether they're right or wrong stories or not there's this passage there's a story actually in the new testament uh jesus it's a story about jesus in the gospel of john 
And uh, it's, it's, it's a great story, actually. And it's a, it's a story that we'll read together and we won't get to get fully immersed in it as much as you might be able to get to even on your own at home, uh, continuing to read through it. But I wanna read it together. It's John chapter four, verse one. And we're gonna read most of the story in its entirety to let it sit with us and then, then pull a few pieces from it for what we're talking about today. So it starts like this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it wasn't Jesus himself, but the disciples who were baptized, he left Judea and he started back to Galilee. So Jesus is going on a trip. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. And it was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks actually drank from it? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, You're right saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one, and, sorry, and, and the, the one you have now is not your husband. But you have said, what you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll proclaim all things to us. And Jesus says to her, I am he, the one who's speaking to you. What a great story. What an amazing story. And, and, and it's, it's a great story for a, a whole bunch of reasons. And we can like teach three or four um, themes coming out of this text for sure. But it's a great story because we find Jesus offering new life. That's probably the best part of this story. He offers new life to this woman who's seeking, who's struggling, who's marginalized. This, per, this woman who's a Samaritan, not a Jew. And at that time, as the text says, they didn't really, they had conflict with one another. And it was a long, long history of conflict. Yet there 
their stories, their stories actually intertwine. They meet at Jacob's well. Jacob is an ancestor of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who then had 12 sons, who then became the nation of Israel. This is Jacob's well. This woman knows it, and so their stories are intertwining. Jesus, who's a Jew, her is a Samaritan at this well, very famous for, for, for knowing that this was Jacob's well. But this woman doesn't know the whole story. And Jesus has to fill in the blanks for her. He fills in the blanks of the story. Verse 10 is one example where she's asking about this water. And then Jesus says these words. In, uh, in verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you knew what God was doing, if you knew what God was offering, if you knew how he was offering, if you knew how God's story was unfolding right now in the present, you'd know that my gift to you is precious. But she didn't know that. And this conversation then turns to worship, how to worship, where to worship, um, what worship looks like. And Jesus says something in verse 22 that's really interesting. He says, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's not ostracizing her. He's not saying you can't worship because you're not Jewish. He's not saying you can't worship because you're not part of that story. He's just filling in details for her. He's saying you don't know what you worship. We know him as a Jew because salvation comes from the Jews. He's not making a separation of people. He's just saying as part of God's story, God interjected into the world and worked through a people called Israel and they have a history of worship in response to God's love and rescue in their lives. He's saying God's story has been playing out, using the Jewish people to bring about salvation for the sake of the world. It started with Israel, but it's not finished with Israel. He's going to get to that in a moment. Jesus does something so beautiful for this woman. He, he, gives, he, he really demonstrates that she has value. The time he spends with her, the conversation he has with her, his very presence with her, the fact that he walked through Samaria to get to Galilee. He didn't have to do that. That was a, probably a better route, but he ends up walking through Samaria to get there. After he meets this woman, he spends two and a half days meeting her family and friends and, and neighborhood to also invite them into this story. Jesus crosses an ethnic line, a gender line, a social line, a religious line, all to demonstrate to this woman the welcome and mercy of God's kingdom and to fill in the blanks for God's story that she's missing. And this is part of what we understand of worship. We worship in response to God's story. And the more we get immersed in it, the more we understand what worship is. Now, we could get super excited about this gift of life Jesus brings her. And as Christians, who wouldn't do that? And as, as you know, we, we, part of our mission is connecting people to a growing relationship with Jesus. So this is happening. Jesus is really inviting her in and, and giving her this gift of life through him. But what I want to do is I want to just kind of isolate this idea of his invitation to worship. See, it seems that she wants to worship. She longs to worship. 
She has this religious inclination or spiritual inclination, or maybe even a human emotional inclination, this long to worship the right things, the kind of things that will bring her life and hope and purpose. She's looking for that. She's longing for that. And Jesus, as much as he offers this life, this living water that only he can give, he also invites her to worship. And as he invites her to worship, if we piece some of, these, some of the elements of the story together, he's really inviting her into God's story. Because an invitation to worship is an invitation into God's story. When, when we come here on a Sunday morning and we worship corporately together as a community, I know we could worship on our own, but when we come and we worship together as a church community, we are, we are worshiping in response to God's story. We're invited we're invited into God's story through our worship. Verse, verse 23 is, is, uh, is probably a highlight and a big piece of this story where he tells her, you know, after they're talking about where, where can they worship, what mountain, is it Jerusalem, uh, and all this. And then Jesus says, listen, the hour is coming. It's actually now here. So it's, it's, it's imminent because Jesus brings in God's kingdom the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say true worshipers are only the Jews. He doesn't say true worshipers are a segment of the population. He's just talking about true worshipers that will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeks such as these to worship him. Something is happening in this moment, Jesus is cluing her in and cluing us in that, that the story of God continues to unfold. It started before, but now Jesus has arrived and he's, he's a pinnacle part of this story. And he, he's letting us know that worship will no longer be restricted to a place or to a people, to an ethnicity or to a location. And the call to worship in spirit is not a place or a mountain or a temple but possible anywhere because the story of God is bigger than the mountain that the Jews worshiped on or the well that Jacob dug. It's bigger than that. And Jesus is calling this woman to understand in us that, that we were called to worship in truth, not our own story, God's story. The, the, the truth is connected to his story because the story of God was bigger than what God started with Israel. It's continuing and God's story, is it's bigger and it's continuing. See, Jesus points her backwards and Jesus points her forward. Jesus points her to the begin, some beginning pieces of this story and he points her to what's going on in that moment and he points her forward as well. And this is the beauty of worship. When we enter into the practice of worship or we choose to practice worship with our actions, with our words, with our lives, with our songs, with our learning, Worship invites us into something bigger than ourselves. In essence, it, it, it causes us to look up. Something bigger than us, something beyond us. A story that might encompass us, but is not restricted to us. So how do we do that? How do we learn to worship through God's story? What does it mean? Here's a, here's a little glimpse um, from Peter, chapter 2, he, he, he's speaking to this group of Christ followers, early first century. They're feeling like strangers and foreigners in the world. 
because of their faith particularly, feeling marginalized. And he says these words, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Like Peter uses words that were used to describe Israel in the Old Testament now to these non-Jews who have entered into the story of God. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The purpose is that we would proclaim the mighty acts of God. We'd, we'd reach back and remember part of God's story and proclaim that. And then it's personal, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Jesus fits them in to what their story fits, how their story fits into God's story. He says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. So we see here that, that Peter's calling this first century church that's not Jewish to enter into the story that started with the Jews, but is a pinnacle with Christ and will continue and their worship for response, their proclamation is a response to God's story, the one who has worked in history, the one who narrates the world. Worship helps answer that question. Who narrates the world? Worship helps us understand that God narrates the world. And so sometimes when we worship, I, I would bet to say that 90% of our worship songs all highlight what Jesus has done for you on the cross so you could be forgiven and and that's not this is good stuff but can you think of worship songs that tie you into creation that tie you into the story of israel that tie you into the incarnation maybe at christmas that tie you into the resurrection and ascension that tie you into the work of the spirit the tie, how, many, how often have we sung about new creation? Think about the songs we sing and the prayers we pray. And so what I want to do just for a moment today, I just want to like just really fast say, hey, here, here's like the three big chapters of the Bible, of the scriptures we read, God's story. The first one is creation. Right in the early pages of Genesis, we read that God, in community with the Trinity, creates the world creates the world, creates something good and beautiful, and he creates humanity. He creates man and woman in his image, and he creates humanity and people and society, and when you think about the relationships that come out of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and I'm not, we're not digging into each text here because we're going to do like a skim version of the story, okay, is that he creates us for three relationships, we have this relationship with God, this relationship with people, and a relationship with creation. God creates humanity to bear God's image, to be in community, and to be stewards over the world. And so these three relationships we have with God, with each other, with creation, means we have three purposes. We have three vocations as humans, to be in communion with God, to be in community with each other, and to be caretakers of our world. When's the last time you sang a worship song about that? See, when we think of the whole story, we go back to creation and we begin to remember and celebrate not only creation, but the creator. Creation and creator. Of course, many of us know how the story starts to unfold because 
Humanity falls into sin, rebellion. Sin corrupts these relationships. Sin breaks these relationships with God, with each other, with the planet. Sin distorts the vocation of communion with God and community with each other and care, care, you know, stewardship and care for our world. But God begins this rescue mission and he confronts and shows up to a guy named Abraham and he calls him into something brand new and he meets this God that he can't control and he is bigger than he's ever seen and breaking a piece of pottery in his house or slicing his skin won't make this God do anything for him. He realizes this God is bigger than anything I've ever encountered before. And God begins this rescue mission, starting with Abraham, that he would be a blessing to the nations, to the world. And through Abraham, you have Isaac and then Jacob and the sons and the family and Israel becomes this nation. And even in Israel's history, this kind of cycle of being, of falling and being broken happens. They fall into slavery under Egypt's empire, and God comes to rescue them. And we get this language of redemption out of the Exodus story. In fact, most, most of the Old Testament looks back to the Exodus. So often, as I've been reading the Psalms the last couple of years, I'm so, like, so often the story of Exodus comes up. They're thanking God for that moment. Because it's a symbol of God's rescue for them physically, tangibly, but also for all time. And it's part of their worship in the Psalms. But, but when you read through the Old Testament, after creation, even in the brokenness, they're waiting for God's Messiah. They're waiting for God to complete the rescue mission. They're waiting for you know, Israel's full vocation of being light to the nations to happen. And it's not going to happen through Israel fully because they've, not, they've messed that up but the Messiah is going to come and complete it as the true Israelite. And it leads to this next part of the story, the incarnation, the ultimate rescue mission, where God sends his only son into the world. God moves into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson translates John chapter 1. The Gospels announce that this Jesus who's born is going to save people from their sin. But Jesus also lets us know that it's, it's bigger than just a personal forgiveness. He, he, he pulls from Isaiah the prophet and says that as a servant of the Lord, he will free the oppressed and give sight to the blind and free the prisoner and bring freedom and restore humanity. That his life would bring God's kingdom near. That his death would destroy the powers of evil. That his resurrection would be the first picture we have of God's end game, of God's full restoration project and new creation. We don't have time to go through the whole story of the church, but here's the last part of the big story. It's new creation, where Jesus doesn't, Jesus comes a second time. He comes as ruler over all creation. The Apostle Paul tells us in in one of the church hymns that we'll probably read next week that, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord of everything. In fact, here, here's a great, here's a great um, description of, of the end game or of new creation. And the end game is not a great way to say it because it's really a new beginning. Here's a Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Just listen. It's not on the screen. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. The first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. And also he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said, it's done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. I wonder if we got a clue of that in John 4 when Jesus told the woman, if you knew the gift that was God wanted to give you, you'd realize I'm right in front of you. Living water. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. God will dwell with us, and we will dwell with him in all fullness. That's, that's part of the description of new creation. Now, we live in between the first and second coming of Christ. We live between the resurrection and the full restoration. But we, in our worship, we anticipate new creation. We sing about it. We talk about it. We hope in it. And so just for a moment, I want us to just stand back and look at the big picture and realize that creation and incarnation and new creation, this is the content of our worship. When we practice worship, when we engage worship, it needs to fit, it needs to embrace the full story of God. We worship through this story and we respond to this story. And as much as your forgiveness and my forgiveness is so amazing and so beautiful and we should thank God for it all the time, it's only one part of the story. It's only one part of the story. And when we respond to the gospel of God's kingdom and we discover salvation, it's part of the, 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 the reward and the response of God because we've responded to the big message of the gospel that his kingdom has come near. It's just, it's a part of the story. A couple of years ago, the same person who wrote um, that book, Who Narrates the World, his name is Robert Weber. He wrote another book called The Divine Embrace. And I, I read it. I don't know what, why I read it, who led me to read it. And for the first time, I started to see the big picture of God's story. It starts in Genesis 1 and 2 and continues through in the climax of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in the church and the full restoration of the new creation. And I remember when I started to get a glimpse of that, I never read the Bible that way. I never, I never worshiped that way. And I started to read and understand and interpret the scripture with a different framework. It wasn't just one truth here and one truth there or one specific, you know, uh, beautiful piece of salvation. It was the whole story. And it really changed. And you know what it changed for me as well? It changed my worship. I began to worship more fully because I started to realize this is a big story. This is a beautiful thing. This is an amazing thing that God is doing. We worship more fully, not only for what God did for me, but what he did for everybody. And see, worship is shaped by God's story. Our worship, or it should be shaped by God's story. I'm not critiquing, like, I mean, if I critique anything, I'm critiquing myself. I'm critiquing how we worship on a Sunday. I'm critiquing how I approach the Lord. What I'm praying for and hoping for is that we would grow, that worship would be shaped by God's story. And yeah, keep that on the screen. And I'll say this. Worship shaped by God's story prevents us from overemphasizing good parts of the story, even really good parts of the story, above the greater story. 
When we worship and our worship is shaped by God's story, it prevents us from picking and choosing or overemphasizing really good parts of the story that are meaningful and purposeful and beneficial to us above the greater part of the story. See, sometimes, and here's three really fast examples. If you and I only choose parts of God's story like justice and care, we risk becoming humanists. We risk saying, oh, I'm going to just do justice and just do care outside of God's story, outside of the worship of God. Justice and care is really important. But if I only choose that part of the story to influence my worship, I risk becoming a humanist, not dependent on God, dependent on myself. I'm going to fix the world. If I only choose the themes of the cross for my personal forgiveness to shape my worship, we risk becoming individualists. We risk letting all this happen just for me, that all God has done just for me, that the only reason I worship God is because he gave me a clean slate and I'm forgiven and maybe, and I have this ticket to heaven and now that's, we risk becoming individualists if we only focus, allow the theme of the cross and personal forgiveness to shape our worship. If we only choose the moment of Pentecost when the Spirit is outpoured on the church and the gifts of the Spirit are evident and there's a beautiful moment, there's beautiful activity, God is doing something beyond our imagination, we risk becoming existentialists. If we only focus on that, if we only say, oh, look what God does in this moment, I feel his Spirit. And I don't say that, I don't say that negatively because it's, it's important to feel his Spirit. But I'm saying if we only choose that moment to shape our worship, we become existentialists. Or in like more normal street terms, we become experience junkies. We become experience junkies. But when we worship in spirit and truth, we worship through all of God's story. And then all of God's story includes justice and care. It includes love and mercy. It includes forgiveness for you and for me and God's grace it includes individual transformation, but also social transformation. It includes spirit-filled empowerment and so much more. But see, the big story helps me fit, helps us fit all the biblical themes in their proper place. And the big story helps you and me fit in our place in the story. The story no longer becomes about me or you, it becomes about God. I don't know who wrote, wrote this phrase. I think it's on the screen. That worship is a theodrama, not an ego drama. Worship is a theodrama, not an ego drama. Theo means God, and ego means self. Worship is a theodrama, not an ego drama. And when we get, you know, immersed in the theodrama, in our worship, in our words, in our songs, in our conversation with each other, uh, in our prayers, we, 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 tend to do, we need to do two things. We remember God's works in creation and incarnation. And we can also remember his works in our lives. But we also anticipate God's promises and new creation. Next week we're going to look at what, what, what does that look like corporately, like for us as a church community? How do we practice that? But see, some, like the Samaritan woman... Try to worship with only parts of the story. 
try to worship with only what we know, only what we have at our disposal. She had Jacob's wall at her disposal. She thought, oh, this is the mountain where we worship. And then, but don't the Jews want us to worship in Jerusalem? She was only thinking of the parts of the story that she knew. And Jesus is saying, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the part of the story where God enters, where God's kingdom breaks in. If you knew part of the story where worship is no longer isolated and stuck on a mountain or in in a city or in a temple, if you knew that, oh, you would see this big picture so much better. So Jesus invites her into a story that was bigger than Israel, that was bigger than Jacob, that didn't end with what happened on that mountain because we end up worshiping through all God's story in spirit and in truth. And um, that's my invitation to us. And I can't, we can't isolate this to one thing, like, you know, one worship song or one reading of scripture or one practice. It's a combination, but I wanted to just give us this big picture today so we can, we can recognize that our invitation to worship God, the practice of worship, invites us into God's big story, God's the theodrama. Now, I'm going to end with this. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of going to Barcelona. And uh, actually, for some reason, you know, I don't travel much, but in the context of, I think, a year or two, I, I went twice because my son wanted to go to Barcelona for his 18th birthday, so I got to go again. And we went to visit this famous church that many of you probably heard, the, the, the Sagrada Familia, which was created and designed by Antoni Gaudi. When you see the church from a distance, it's huge. Actually, it kind of looks like Disney World from here, but uh, it's, it's really much better. And uh, imagine that it was started in the early 1900s. This vision of this church is, is incredible because not just because it's a church. It's not, it's not, again, we just said God's presence doesn't dwell in a space. The fulfillment of God's story moves past that. But the beauty of this church is that it tells the whole story of God. Sometimes you walk into a church and you see a cross. That's important. It's central to our faith. And sometimes you walk into a church and you see just, you know, just the communion table. And that's important too. We practice that monthly and that's very important. We're going to talk about that next week actually. But the beauty of this church is that it's a vision of what the whole story of God is like. And it's such a privilege to walk into it from entrance to exit. You can't exit the same way you came in. You enter and then you exit And you can't help but worship. And here's a few pictures as we walk through. This first picture gives you a little bit of the glimpse, or the next picture actually gives you a little bit of the glimpse of the front facade. And we can't get close, but as you, as if you would stand back and see the front facade and see some of the images and the trees outside and beside it, there's this image that God is creator, that He has created all things. And as you Get closer to this door. They commissioned a Japanese artist, and it's actually green. It's a little bit, the light's off here. But that's all green leaves. And inside, intertwined, you'll see like a ladybug and a certain kind of creature and certain things. It's just celebrating that God has created all things with beauty and with purpose. Then as you walk into the front door and as you walk into the church, you are just enamored. This is like a pale reflection of what it's like. Because you walk in, and the sun uh, allows orange and reds and greens to come in in the morning but then as the sun 
uh, moves position, greens and blues come into the building in the afternoon. And it just fills the space with incredible light and color. And the four posts that you kind of see in the middle, they represent the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four Gospels, the apostolic teaching, is kind of like the pillars. And, and then they go right through the roof. You won't see that now. They go right through the roof. And, and there are now these, these posts, these huge posts. And eventually they're building the middle post, which is going to reflect Jesus. But there's the Old and New Testament, the Gospels, the cross and resurrection. I think there's another uh, picture of the church. It's just amazing. And uh, if you go to the next slide, this is the back door. And there's a whole bunch of words in the back door, but certain words pop out. And obviously, who can read? Anybody read the words there? See the Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Jesus is central. He's front and center of this. And as you walk out the back door and look back, you see themes of the cross and, and just the, the, the crucifixion scene. But then as you step back into the back door in this next slide, you end up seeing just the beauty of all that. Go to the next one. And now the cross, now the empty cross is central. The resurrection is central. The ascension is central. And all these images of new creation start to pop up as you look closer and closer. I don't know about you. When I walked through this building, I, I left the building worshiping. The whole story of God. And what's really cool about this project is it's not even finished yet. It started in 1925. They project that it could be finished in 2025. Gaudi had this vision, this dream that was bigger than his life, that was bigger than the breath he had, that was bigger than his hands could, could accomplish. He, they, they brought in and commissioned hundreds of skilled architects and sculptors and, and carpenters and artists to build this. And just that, just that idea that this person saw this but realized this is bigger than me. This is going to take more than my lifetime to build. The project's not over yet. And that's kind of the idea of God's story. God's story is so much bigger than us. So much bigger than, than the, the extent of my life. We can only be invited into it. We can only be invited into it. And once we see it for what it is, we look up, we worship. We're not worshiping a building. We're not worshiping a piece of art. It just reflects the beautiful big story of God that God is inviting us into. And so my heartbeat as we grow in our walk with Christ and as even if you're here today and you're wondering like, you know, how do I start this journey of faith? It's a journey that you actually slowly walk into and slowly discover there's more and more and more. It's bigger than you. You might just find one piece and one idea and one truth, but as, as the fullness of God's kingdom comes to bear, you start discovering the fullness of who Jesus is, the fullness of God's story. And if you've been a Christian for a long time and missed that, then here's our opportunity to re-immerse ourselves that worship is an invitation into God's story. We're going to pray. God, we... We just pause here right now and um, we recognize, Lord, our limitation from often seeing the big picture. We read one word or one phrase or maybe that one experience that has demonstrated to us who you are, which is a beautiful thing, and yet your story is so much bigger even than that. Help us to see 
your purpose, your life, your intention from creation to new creation. Help us to see how the work of Jesus, the life and death and resurrection and enthronement of Jesus fit into your large story of restoring and rescuing humanity. Oh God, help us to see your intentionality and intervention through Abraham and the life of Israel, even in the roller coaster of their life, of their journey, of their ups and downs, of their exile. Oh God, help us to see the, the words of the prophets that pointed to your Messiah coming in Christ, pointing to the fullness of your spirit, pointing away from even the early experience of the Jews worshiping in the tabernacle, worshiping in the temple, focused on a city or a mountain, how your story kept looking, pushing us to look forward to the fullness of Christ in your spirit. And even that, oh God, Lord, the intention of looking forward to new creation, the recreation of the garden in a new city where you will dwell with us and we will dwell with you. And the lordship of Jesus will be the lordship of the cosmos. No more tears, no more pain. The fullness of communion with you and communion with each other. Living out a vocation among the beauty you've created, God. We, my words fall so short to even get a glimpse of this. These pictures fall short. This piece of art, as beautiful as it is, falls short because your story is magnificent and enormous. And the extent of what you long to do so much bigger than we could imagine. So we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your son, Jesus, and empowering us by your spirit to walk with you and to participate in your plans and purposes in your story. God, forgive us when our life, when our worship, when our ministry, when our words become an ego drama. Lord, we want to be part of your drama, your story. Oh God, and may we respond in worship in proclamation and praise. May we be able to stand back and respond and give you all the worth, the worth that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. 
If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.